Bible, why don't you go to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, we're going to cover verse 1 down to 34 for tonight. Um, if you were with us this morning, we took uh, the first 12 verses, and we did that in depth, so I'm not going to belabor the point in great length. But um, to set the setting here now, Jesus has just finished dining with the Pharisee, as you know. And um, he rebuked them for their hypocrisy, for their pretense, for their uh, wanting to present themselves as more righteous than the people. He, uh, he pronounced woes on them, um, lawyers and Pharisees. They didn't like it. They got a little upset and they began to bombard him with many questions and assault him in a way that they wanted to just trap him and stumble him so they could accuse him. This is um, the ongoing attitude towards Jesus. Again, he's about six months away from his death. He is uh, coming from the north, from Caesarea Philippi, down towards Jerusalem. And uh, he knows exactly what's going to happen. And so he's preparing these uh, 12 apostles that he has chosen over an entire night in prayer. And so the first 12 um, verses give us the warning against this um, um, pharisaical hypocrisy. In the meantime, uh, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So we have the translation in the meantime. We do not know the time element of that, but he goes from in the house to the crowds. He's addressing his disciples, hypocrisy, leaven. Leaven is symbolic of sin. If you go back to the Old Testament, the first rule of mention is wherever something's mentioned for the first time, then that will be a consistent meaning of that unless it is stated otherwise in the context. Example, every time you have gold, it's deity, silver is redemption, brass is judgment, unless otherwise stated, so on and so forth. So these are consistent rules of mention, of first mention. And so um, birds are evil unless they are indicated otherwise. Jesus in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, he gives the specific meanings. So that is given and we follow that. And if something's contrary to the usual order, then we take it because of the context. But here again, leaven is evil, the hypocrisy, the acting, as we've mentioned many times, that mask in the theater. And, um, and Jesus just exposed them completely. Um, now, it's a pretty forensic um, situation here. He goes from the violent situation inside to a tumultuous uh, uh, mob mentality on the outside. And they're eager to get to Jesus, to hear what Jesus is saying. And um, again here, um, Jesus warns his disciples, and, and he makes a point that he's talking to his disciples. Uh, verse 1, verse 15, 22, 41, and 54. Um, the crowds are in the backdrop, but he's talking to them. And he says um, in verse 2, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. So the warning of, of attempting to live a life of hypocrisy in a way that you can present yourself as something before people and, and, and something contrary um, in real life. Um, religious people can do that. Um, people who consider themselves spiritual in terms of any type of mysticism or like today's new age or whatever it may be. They, because you say you're spiritual doesn't mean you are moral or ethical. Morality and ethics comes from God with absolute right or wrong. Our society today, even the church, is no longer teaching objective truth. It's all subjective. Even within the church, there are questionable things now that are being practiced and taught. They're moving away from objective truth. Um, the Bible teaches objective truth. It's not subjective. You must look at the context, look at the historical background, look at the grammar. And these letters were written to specific people at a set time with certain situations or problems. And so they're to communicate truth to that generation. And once we find out what is to them, then we can see how we can apply it to us. And so here again, hypocrisy is very, very clear here. And verse 3 says, Therefore, whatever you have spoken 
in the dark will be heard in the light and whatever you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be uh, proclaimed on the housetop. So nothing is hidden from God, Hebrews 4.12. Nothing can be covered, nothing can be kept secret. He will reveal everything, whatever men have forgotten when they come to the judgment day of the white throne judgment in Revelation 20. And God will pull up the books, open up the books as it says there in Revelation 20. And men and women will be judged according to that. Now, that is the judgment for the non-believer, white throne judgment. The believer goes through the bema seat of Christ. We will suffer loss of reward because of the wrong motivation for what we have done. 1 Corinthians uh, 3 Second uh, Corinthians five ten, um, Romans fourteen ten, I believe, um, and there uh, God will judge us for why we did what we did and how we did what we did, and if it wasn't for the love of God and the love of brethren, then we get no reward. But that's the bema seat of Christ will take place at the rapture of the church and we're in heaven with him. The white throne judgment is after the thousand year reign when all are brought out of hell. Hades, Gehenna, we'll get into a little bit tonight. And then they're judged before the white throne judgment. There is no second opportunity for salvation at that point. It is simply to sentence you to eternity under God's verdict for your evil life. That's the non-believer, not the believer. And so here in in verse 4, down to 7 now, the believer must uh, fear God rather than man. Um... And I say to you, my friend, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and afterwards have no more that they can do. Now, again, here the pretense of hypocrisy where a man would bow down to the authorities of the land, king, supreme, authority, whatever it may be, simply to see what they can get, simply because of the benefit. While at all, in reality, it's not a true reverence, it's hypocrisy. Well, the same thing that someone can say they're a Christian because it is a fashionable thing. But then when persecution comes, then what are going to be the colors of that person? Are they going to be true and genuine? Or now will they just swing like a weather vane, depending which way the wind's blowing? And so again, here Jesus um, is speaking to his disciples, warning the disciples about the bad example of the Pharisees. Not to follow that. Now, if there was no potential for the disciples to do this, why talk about it? When Jesus said up in the upper room, one of you will betray me this night. Do you realize that every one of the twelve said, is it I? Read the Gospels. Every one of the twelve understood they had the potential to betray Jesus. When God warns us about something, it isn't because there's no possibility. And by the way, He only warns believers. Non-believers are dead. He's trying to save them. They're warned through the gospel. But constantly the believers warn about not being deceived. Not going back in the world. Not going to the left, the right. So on and so forth. And so here again, um, all that man can do is take our life. Um, after that, you're instantly present before the Lord. Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. Uh, for me to live as Christ and die as gain, Philippians one twenty one. So you move, and then they put your body in the grave, or they barbecue you in cremation, whatever way you want to go. Um, and people say, "Oh no, no, no! You can't get cremated. That's not Christian." Really? Well, what happens to Christians that die in burning buildings? Do they not go to heaven? Are they second class citizens? <laughs> How about the Christians that's out there snorkeling in the uh, Mediterranean and Joss comes up and has them for lunch? See, it's irrelevant what you do with my body after I'm gone. God's not going to have any problems putting it back together. And by the way, he's not going to raise this body exactly as it is. 
There's a relationship between them, but no likeness. First Corinthians 15 says. It will be a glorified body just like that of Jesus Christ. And that raising of the body takes place at the rapture of the church. When that generation escapes physical death and the dead are raised from the grave and they're caught up together with that generation that gets raptured and their bodies meet them as they come down with their loved ones and so will be with the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter 4 from verse 13 on down to 18. He tells that very clear. The heart of it is verse 17, 16 and 17. And so it's very, very clear. So here again, uh, a man has limited uh, power over us. Um, once um, uh, they kill you, you're done. You're home with the Lord. Verse 5 says, But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. He says it twice. Now, the word hell here is the word for Gehenna. A Gehenna is that valley um, outside of uh, the city of Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley. Uh, if, you're, if, I'm facing, if I'm on the Mount of Olives right here facing the east gate, it's over here towards the left. Okay, Some of you were there with us in May. And there in the valley of Hinnom was um, the valley of Tophet. It's also called the place of fire. The trash heap, all the trash was burning. Jesus says the place where it's dark, the fire never quenched, the worm never dies. And he describes that as Gehenna. They used to sacrifice their children to the god Molech there also during Kings and, and during Jeremiah and, and, and the prophet Isaiah and that. And so Gehenna is the ultimate place where everything will be cast in there. Gehenna was made for no one but Satan and his angels, Matthew twenty five forty one, uh, Revelation 20 says that hell and death will be cast in. Uh, the Antichrist, the false prophet, um, uh, they will be cast into hell. Hell, death, everything at the end. What we usually describe as hell is the Old Testament Sheol or the New Testament Hades. When we get to chapter 16, we'll do a message on that. As Jesus reveals to us that the Old Testament plays a waiting Sheol comprised of two compartments. The place of torment and the place of comfort. Bosom of Abraham and the place of God's wrath. But we don't know that until the New Testament when Jesus speaks about it in Luke 16. He's the only one that tells us that. The other synoptic gospels do not give us that information. So you have Sheol or Hades. And then when Jesus descended to the lowest part, as Ephesians and Colossians tells us, he made a public spectacle of the demons and all spirits. They couldn't hold him and he led captivity captive. So now, um, when people die, if they die in Christ then they're instantly present before the Lord. Their spirit and their souls go before the Lord. The body goes to the grave to be raised. If you're a non-believer, the minute you die, you're instantly in hell, one compartment now, not two, and you're waiting there until you are judged after the thousand-year reign to be cast in the lake of fire. There are other locations called Tartarus, Paul, uh, Peter says that in chapter 2 of Peter. It's a location where um, angels are in chain, um, in darkness, and, and they will not be released. They're so vile. And then you have the uh, bottomless pit or the shaft where demons are. And so you have these different locations. And all are cast into the lake of fire completely. Um, God is supreme. God is in control. And so... Um, the one word to fear, verse 5, is God, because He has control not only to take your life, but then after He's done with that body, to sentence you to eternal separation from Him. The lake of fire or Gehenna, same place. Now, verse 6, it says, um, Are not five sparrows sold uh, for two copper coins, and not one of them? is forgotten before God. So now he illustrates the value and the care of God for the uh, believer um, that um, these birds are, are very um, uh, abundant and they're, they're sold real cheap. Uh, well, two copper coins, you get five. In other words, uh, uh, for one copper coin, you get two. And, and for two coins, you get four. And if you buy four instead of two, they'll throw in a fifth one. Okay? And... Um, and that's what he's talking about. And if God cares for them, 
um, then how much more us, the believer? He's very aware of everything. He's more concerned about us than sparrows. Verse 7 says, But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. There's the punchline. You are of more value than many sparrows. So the illustrations from the lesser to the greater. It's a comparison, not a contrast. A comparison, okay? Kind of little mini parables here. Also, I say to you, Whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man, will also confess before the angels of God. So now from verse 8 to 12, you have the Creator's desire to save sinners. His desire is to deal with the heart of man and for man to be open for God to reveal his love and care for salvation. Um, those who confess say the same thing about Jesus before men, genuinely, not hypocritically. Then... Um, as they confess the Son of Man, the title of Jesus Christ in His humanity as God in the flesh, but um, the, the, the Son of Man will confess them before the angels in heaven. So the result of salvation is that now we're in the family of God. And when we pass from this life, then we will be in heaven. And uh, Jesus will confess us, not only before the angels, but before His Father. Now, in verse 9 says, But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So the flip side of that. That person who is, uh, um, hears the gospel, who rejects the gospel, um, he is separated from God for all eternity. You have the two thieves on the cross. Both of them equally distant from Jesus. Both of them equally heard Jesus, the words that he spoke from the cross. One chose to believe in faith. The other continued to reject. One went to heaven. The other one to hell. Waiting for the white throne judgment. He's still there waiting. He will be judged. Because he rejected it. And that's always the case. The gospel goes forth. People will accept or reject. God will do everything necessary and possible to reach sinners. And then a sinner has to respond. Now, not every Christian believes what I'm telling you. Some believe that you can only believe if God predestined you and elected you. And they believe that God only elected and predestined a, a few number while predestining electing the remainder to go to hell. And there's nothing they can do. They cannot believe. I reject that doctrine of Calvinism. Alright? John 3.16 says that God died for the whole world. 1 John 2.2 2 says he's the propitiation. That which satisfied God's wrath. Not only for our sins, the believer, but the whole world. You cannot substitute the word world for elect. That's dishonest. And it's redundant if you do that with 1 John 2, 2. I believe the sacrifice of Christ for the whole world. And that God will do all in His ability to reach every sinner. So that when He judges people who have rejected gospel... They are fully responsible and accountable for their own lostness by rejecting the only way, the only truth, the only eternal life, Jesus Christ. For God must be holy and just, and He is. Therefore, the standard is the same, the gospel. Now, in verse 10, it says, And anyone... Who speaks the word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. So he's dealt with salvation, those who accept, those who reject. Now he deals with those who are being dealt with by the Holy Spirit of God. And he makes a contrast between um, um, those who speak a word against the Son of Man. In other words, just... Intellectually, just in argument or just in, in an intellectual assessment, if they repent of this, God will forgive them. 
But when the Holy Spirit is dealing with them, revealing that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Savior of the world, and they keep rejecting, hardening their heart, there is a line out there. I don't know where that is. But once a person crosses it, then God gives the person up. Read Romans chapter 1. God gave them up to unclean and vile effects and reprobate mind. Three steps. Whether those are the ultimate and only three steps, I can't tell you. The best way to define this, if you think you have blasphemed, you have not. Because if you have, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be concerned about God, salvation, heaven, hell, or anything else. God would give you up. And so, here again, you see the love of God and the warning. Now, this, this sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is associated with um, attributing the work of Jesus to Satan. Remember, he was casting out demons in the previous chapters? And all this is not the Gospels, and even John records that association. And so, Matthew says, this sin is not forgiven in this age or the age to come. This age is the age of grace. The age to come is the millennial kingdom. And people will live on the earth, multiply, just like we do right now, who enter in. And they will have to be born again, accepting Christ, just like you and I do here. You and I will be glorified. They will not. So if it can be committed during this age, then it has to be committed in the next age also. And yet there are very godly Godly men and good teachers that teach that this cannot be committed today. I don't understand how that can even be said. But they teach that. He says in this age and the age to come in Matthew. And so the warning here. Now in verse 11, he says, Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. So he goes beyond the salvation. You've embraced Christ. Now there's persecution coming. Okay, not every Christian will be persecuted, but the Christian church will live under persecution and always has. There's very few countries that has not. America is one of those, but the climate is changing in our nation. It certainly is very uh, hostile in terms of the universities, the public school system. It's certainly becoming hostile within the legislation of our nation, judicial system. And so we, we see the tides changing in America. And so here again, um, the confidence and trust in God that he will be faithful to us. If we have grown, developed, and, 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 and been depending on the Lord as Christians and living in maturity, that He will bring these words to our mind when we are brought before those who would accuse us and even pronounce death over us or whatever it may be. And so rather than worry about all this, as the passage indicates, it's better to just trust the Lord in confidence and be growing and being filled with the Spirit of God and maturing so that if that time ever comes, I have done everything in preparation to do so. This is what soldiers do. They go to boot camp. And they get put to the most grueling training because they're preparing them to go to war and die. And that's exactly what Jesus calls you. He calls you a soldier of the cross. And we are to be well trained. We're to be faithful. We're to put on the whole armor of God. We're to do good warfare. We're to know the enemy. We're to know the traps of the enemy. And we're to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verse 12 it says, For the Holy Spirit will uh, teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Ought duty. Paul the Apostle, Stephen, the book of Acts chapter 7, 26, different times. God just gave them the words. But they studied the word. They lived out the word. They were involved in ministry. They were preaching the gospel. They weren't playing games. So it makes 
A big, big difference. Now, when we come to verse 13 down to 15, now you have an interruption regarding uh, a person's inheritance. He says, Then one, of, one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now, the request for Jesus was to arbitrate between this man and his brother. The interruption is a bit rude if you really look at the context. Um, Jesus is speaking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and leaven and being phony. And this man out of the crowd makes this request that Jesus might bring a verdict about the inheritance of his brother and himself. And yet, he tries to do it respectfully. Teacher, but to divide the inheritance, Jesus says, that's not what I came to do. That's not my job. This, he knew, was the duty of the synagogues. If there was any question, the rabbis, the elders would look at it. This was all laid out in the law. If you look at Deuteronomy and Exodus and the different parts of the law, that the elder brother would receive twice the portion. And he would have the duty to take care of, of his parents and different things like that. And so it was all laid out in the law. Um, he, he knew this, but he wanted Jesus to make this decision. And yet, to an extent, um, he gets rebuked by Jesus. And so in verse 15, Jesus um, addresses um, the crowd and the disciples. And he says to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. Jesus knew what was in his heart. The word covetous means a desire for more. Greed. Colossians tells us that covetousness is a sin of idolatry. And so here he's trying to pass himself off as something that he's not. The very same theme of hypocrisy. He's guilty of it. He's trying to present his case as maybe the brother's trying to rip him off. And, you know, all he wants is just to be just. But the law had already laid out. If you're the elder, you get doubled. If you're the younger, you get one portion. And that's sin nature. What's his motive? He wants more. He wants all, maybe. Jesus declares... The principle for this type of hypocrisy of covetousness. He says the life does not consist in the abundance of the things that we possess. From this, he's going to give us the parable of the rich fool. This is what prompts it. A desire for more. People today, they call it bling bling. Everybody wants to pass themselves off as having it all. Got the rings, got the nails, got the hair, got everything. No, nothing wrong with dressing nice, nothing wrong with being up to date. But living for it, doing anything to obtain it, or buying what you can't afford is not very wise or very honest. And that's the problem today. Look at Facebook. The social media. Everybody's living the dream. They have their own TV show. They get to tell people how great they are. And how happy they are. Posing everything. People are a bunch of posers. When I grew up in the 60s. A poser was a guy who, who would just go out with a surfboard and put a surfboard in the sand and sit there. He just, well, he didn't surf. 
Today, people are living for things, coveting, being envious. How much, how much can you use? How much do you need? Jesus is going to get into very basics here. Verse 16 to 21, it prompts the parable of the rich fool. Listen carefully. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentiful. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? And so he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. 16 to 19, this man is self-absorbed. Look at 16. Jesus speaks this parable as a result of the interruption of covetousness. And he shares that this certain rich man had a certain ground that was yielding an abundance of crop. Very fertile. The man considered what he would do since he was unable to store all this abundance. Now many people pray for this type of a problem. <laughs> They're just waiting to win that lotto. Have you ever done some research on what happens to people that win the lotto? Usually it's people that haven't earned money or worked hard. And so they don't know how to handle money and it destroys them. And even those who have, sometimes it's such a large amount that it just causes them to lose all sense of responsibility and accountability. Uh, money opens more doors that are dangerous than beneficial. It's a whole different kind of problem that the majority of us will never have. <laughs> um, the man came up with a solution. He was unable to store all his abundance. Um, his solution was to put away tearing down his barns and build bigger ones so he could store all his goods. But then notice in 19, the man planned to enjoy all his abundance. He's, he's talking to himself. Don't, don't ever talk to yourself. It's, talk to God. His concern was with a life of ease, eating and drinking. And we can all rise. Hey, I, I've worked hard these 30, 40 years. Hey, I've got it coming. If you got what you were coming, would you have, if you, if you, I mean, if you really look at it, all of us, we, we, we got hell coming. If I'm, if I get what I deserve. And if you have worked hard, thank God that you're a hard worker. But once again, he's so stuck on himself. Six times the personal pronoun I is used by him. Kind of sounds like our president, Barack Obama. You think he was Mexican, ay, ay, ay. <laughs> he was in control of his own life. He felt sufficient for it. I, I'm in control. I know what I'll do. I'll do this. I'll do that. And his plans... His plants, my crops, my barns, all my crops, my goods, my soul. 17 through 19. This describes this generation that we're living in, ladies and gentlemen. The entitled, covetous generation 
that is lazy and they don't want to work. Wow. That's why spread the wealth is so popular. Everybody else's wealth, not mine. <laughs> when the occupiers were there in, in the park, they did a little test, went in there and see if they would share their computer. No, it's mine. Oh, they want my money. But they wouldn't share their computer, huh? How hypocritical. How dishonest. How revealing. Verse 20 to 21, we see the self-destroyed man. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods, lay up for many years, take your ease, eat, drink, and be married. Then in 20 to 21, but God said to him, fool, oof. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will these things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. There's the punchline. The verdict of God was that he was a fool without reason or reflection. Considering only the physical benefits and not the spiritual consequences. That's always the thing that grabs us. We have to be careful. Satan said to you, oh, surely you will not die. God knows the day you'll be just like him. He's a killjoy. He just wants to make your life miserable. He's just jealous because you might be just like him. And she looked at the fruit and it was desirable to make one wise. Hmm. He would die that very night. Verse 20. His soul would be required by God. It's appointed unto every man and woman to die once in the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 no one knows the day of his death. Now, we all know we're going to die. We just don't know when. And somehow we think that if we're young and healthy, we're not going to die. But young and healthy people die all the time. And yet, as God has that date, and, you know, we can get into the whole argument. People, well, I, I think that every man has a date and a woman and, and nothing can happen between that date. And, well, I, I don't know if that's really true. Okay? The main question is, is there going to be more between your birth and your death date than a hyphen <laughs> that people are going to remember? Will there be a record in heaven that your life was meaningful? Or was it for self like this man? He was ignorant that God was going to recall his life that very night. The implication being, all his abundance will be enjoyed by what? Someone else. Many times the wealth left to others is gone through very quickly because those receiving it didn't work for it. Solomon puts it this way, and Solomon hated that. You ever read Ecclesiastes? One thing that bugged him. I've worked so hard, this and that, and I'm going to leave it to this dumb son of mine, and he's going to go through it. Listen to him. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has no labor for it, or not labor for it. This also is vanity and great evil. I knew a man who um, was left a lot of money 
by someone he cared for. And he did it because he just wanted to do it. Very kind, very benevolent. And at death, to his amazement, the man left all kinds of money for him. And this man went through it like water. A Christian. Lost the new houses. Lost everything. You see, if you don't work hard for your money, you're not going to spend wisely and under priorities. The worst priority is this man spend it all on himself. And we're going to see the punchline that he was poor towards God. Verse 21. So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. There's the punchline. The truth applies to every person like the rich fool. So is he who lays up treasure for himself. Their sin is being in spiritual poverty, not rich towards God. Nothing wrong with money, riches, having things in and of themselves, but living for them and trusting them instead of God as even the material that preceded this is wrong. It tweaks our heart. Or really, let me rephrase that. It's a reflection of our heart, as we will see. It's where we're at. It's our worldview. So we may say, well, I believe in God, but I'm being a hypocrite. I, I really don't trust God. I trust my bank account. Is there anything wrong with your bank account? Not in and of itself. But am I trusting that more than God? James deals much with the rich and the poor. And he warns the rich. But he also gets on the poor. That they not push their poorness to get their way. <laughs> it can happen on both ends. Now be careful. Well, if he was really a Christian, you know, and he was really like Jesus, he would give me one of his three cars because he doesn't need three. Really? Now, if he did give it to you because God told him, praise God. But for you to think that that's what he should do if he's really spiritual, then you're like this man who's greedy and covetous for inheritance. It's simple. Read the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. The scriptures condemn laziness. Solomon despised lazy people. You should be the hardest worker wherever you live or wherever you work. You say, yeah, well, I'm the only Christian there. Boy, God must really trust you. You're the only Christian there? Whoa, you must really be a spiritual giant. That God would be able to trust you with a building full of pagans so that they can see Jesus through you? Wow. Do you take breaks longer than you should as a Christian? Do you get on your phone when you should be working? Do you do personal things on the computer when you're being paid for? All those things, the non-believers looking at you to see if you're just like them or different. It's those little foxes that spoil the vine. Those little things. Now, in 22 to 31, Jesus gives the command against anxiety about the provisions for life. He moves on in the same theme. He says, then he said to his disciples, here again, 
indicates his disciples. Therefore I say to you, he's the supreme authority, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. So, nothing wrong with those things, but we don't live for these things, and we aren't to be preoccupied constantly as if that is the priority of life. He says, and now, in verse 23 here, he's going to illustrate this. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. So the value of life is not to be equated with how many toys you have. Years back, there was a dumb bumper sticker. The one who dies with the most toys wins. How dumb is that? At least it wasn't dirty. But it's still dumb. So, again... There's nothing wrong with the natural provision. And, and, and he mentions the most basic things, food and water, drink, clothing. Okay? He's not talking about luxuries here. Verse 24 says, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouses nor barn, and God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds. And so the first mini parable in 24 deals with the simple observation about ravens. The ravens do not sow nor reap. They don't have storehouses. Do you ever see a raven with a, with a wheelbarrow? Taking the stuff in? Yet God provides for them, showing us and teaching us that through nature we can see the goodness of God. The application of the mini parable comes in the middle of and towards the end of 24 down to 26. In 24, the punchline is from the lesser to the greater. A comparison of how much more value are you than birds. There's a punchline. Then in 25, and which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? A cubit is 18 inches. By worrying, can you grow? It's a rebuke here. <laughs> if you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? So verse 25, the uselessness of being over-preoccupied with troubling cares of one's needs without trusting God is wrong. The wise conclusion is in 26, it's to trust God for all of our needs. If you're not able to do the least, why are you anxious about the rest? House, profession, different things. Now, again, is it wrong to plan, to work hard? No. And you should know what you want for your life, seeking the Lord. What do you want to do? You're going to have to work. You're going to have to get prepared. What are you going to do? But if you just lay around and do nothing, then one day you end up in poverty. It's real simple. Again, this in no way teaches that Christians are not to work. But they're to work hard. But they're not to work simply to acquire things. It's a simple principle. Paul, as you know, worked with his own hands to maintain the ministry and those who were with him. First Thessalonians 4.11 and when he wrote to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, he says, That person who does not work should not eat. Simple principle. Now you give that. Go out in the street and tell people, Do you believe the Bible says if you don't work you shouldn't eat? They will say, No! 
They would be shocked that the Bible teaches that. Now, it doesn't mean that someone has had uh, a disability through an accident that needs to be taken care of in terms of family or whatever the means may be. It doesn't mean that someone has fallen to bad times, that he cannot be helped. That's not speaking against that. But it's talking about a person who feels entitled and that he doesn't have to work and that others should supply him. You know how many people think that the church has an obligation to pay their bills and pay for their food and to do whatever they need? They're smoking crack. I don't know what Bible they're they're reading. And people know that and they go down Colorado, they start on one end of Colorado and they hit all the churches and the next month they come back the other way. And most churches just give all kinds of money and all kinds of stuff. And they don't talk to those people. They don't share their gospel. And they don't keep a list on them so they don't get taken all the time. God's given us a brain. Let's use it. Now, verse 27. Consider the lilies. How they grow, and they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So the second mini parable deals with the lovely observation about lilies here. Lilies grow, but they don't toil or spin. The commentary is a contrast. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now it's not a comparison, but a contrast. The best silk that Solomon had cannot compare to a lily in the field, the texture, the beauty, the naturalness of it. Amazing. 28 comes the application of the mini parable. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. In other words, it's very temporal, it's very short-lived, short lifespan. How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So the application of the punchline is a comparison from the lesser to the greater. O ye of little faith. Who's he talking to? His disciples. Jesus knew the heart of everybody. And so in 29, and do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have or or, or anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. And so the uselessness of over a preoccupation of provisions without trusting God in verse 29 is the principle. The first part of 30, the believer is to be different than the unbeliever. For all these things the nations, the Gentile world, seeks after. The rest of 30, the conclusion is to know God, that He will provide all of our needs. He's our Heavenly Father. You as a father, if you're married and you have children, you will do all and anything you have to to provide for your children. If you have to work two jobs, if you are a moral, ethical, spiritual Christian, then you will do whatever it takes to be that provider. If you're part of the entitled mentality of today's America, you'll demand that the government take care of you or others. So you stand in one of two groups. The confidence that we have as Christians, our Heavenly Father, will take care of us. 
But it doesn't just happen by sitting. I go work. I go up make application. I go to school. I get trained in the craft. Whatever. You get to choose whether you're a college person or whether you were better with your hands. You get to choose what you do. Just like you get to choose who you marry. <laughs> How you're going to earn your living and who you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Two very important decisions. And they both will affect one and the other. Now in 31 it says, But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. So the priority of the believer will ensure the provisions. My priority is the kingdom of God. I'm not living for things. Nothing wrong with the things. But that's not what I live for. Everything I possess is going to be left behind. They're not even going to bury me with my shoes. They're going to barbecue me anyway, so I won't need shoes. It doesn't matter. But it's easy to get out of focus. If we have a rise in the world, we become envious or covetousness or, or we attribute the worth of a person because of all that he has. It's irrelevant. In verse 32 to 34, you have the promise of the kingdom. Listen carefully. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The spiritual generosity of God to the believer here. Listen carefully. Jesus gave them the imperative command. Do not fear, based on what he has said all along the illustrations. Jesus indicated the church would never be incredibly large, calling them little flock. At another time, the disciple says, are there many to be saved? Jesus says, few. Agonized to enter in. Straight and narrows the way and there be few to find it. So when you see the church large, what you see is not all believers. There's tares and there's wheat. There's leaven and there's wheat. There's believers and there's big buzzards, big birds in the tree. When the church becomes abnormally large in the latter days as we are today, there's a lot of corrupt leaders in the church. Study the kingdom parables in Matthew 13. And so, the visible church is not all-inclusive of the invisible church that resides in heaven and in earth. And God knows who they are. The good pleasure of the Father to give us a kingdom. Here we're, we're selling ourselves short. Some bread and a car and a house. God says, hey, I want to give you the kingdom. <laughs> he wants to give more to us than we can even desire. Verse 33 says, sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old and treasures in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. And so the basic principles here in 33 and 34 of the kingdom. In 34, the benevolence comes back to us in abundance. 33. The relationship is to the rich fool, the parable that he gave. Don't be like him, merely hoarding things. Sell what you have and give alms. It doesn't mean that you sell everything. You sell of your abundance as the Lord leads you or impart that as God directs you. Whenever a church or a minister tells you to go sell all that you have and give it to their ministry, get up and walk out. 
They'll never allow a quote-unquote minister to tell you how much to give. The Bible tells you that you're to be motivated by God's love and obedience to give to God as God has blessed you. You make that decision. Don't let anybody manipulate you and twist the scriptures. As God leads you to help, to give, He will bless you. You cannot outgive God. Don't be poor towards God, but invest in the kingdom, is what He's saying. God pays great dividends. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. Treasures in heaven, they do not fail. Thieves don't enter in and destroy. <laughs> in other words, that's the safest place to invest. We're going to get into some more parables of the investing in terms of the kingdom. And so whatever you do, it's the motive that matters, not the amount that you do or the amount that you give. Is why do you do it and how do you do it? And God says, I like that. I'll honor that. Wow. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's the punchline of the entire section from 13 to 14. Where your treasure is, that is the thing that you live for and I live for, which motivates my life. The reason why I get up every morning There your heart will be also. This will tell you and me who or what is my God. Your God can be in the parking lot. <laughs> taking two stalls. Your God could be in the nursery. Your little baby. Your God could be your bank account. Your job. Your wife, your husband. If God isn't your God, then everything else is irrelevant. It's idolatrous. And it will make life much more difficult and bring many, many problems. Only as we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all these things will be added unto us in God's priority, in God's time, everything. And I can tell you from my own life, God's goodness and all that, and not because of what I have, doesn't make any difference. It's irrelevant. But I've seen God's faithfulness as your pastor for over 40 years. As he took me out of the world and he dared to use me and begin a church from three people and take care of the church, develop it and give us a building and all that he does and all the teaching and everything. God is so good. You, you just, you just cannot lose if you trust God and walk with Him. You just can't. It's impossible. <laughs> Absolutely impossible. Father, thank You for Your grace and love, Your goodness. Deal with our hearts and we thank You for just Your grace, Lord. Forgiving us of our sins, giving us eternal life, providing for us, Lord. We pray that, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that you would uh, speak to them and allow them to understand your grace and love and their need of you, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the Internet. Right where you sit, you can accept Christ Jesus. It's called repentance. Asking Him to forgive you. To give you a new heart. To make you a child of God. 
And if you mean that, He will transform you and make you a son and daughter. This is your prayer to Him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.